While we meet here tonight, American warships are steaming their way towards the Persian Gulf. There is increased tension with Iran. You're not surprised. This is kind of an ongoing saga. One hopes that this is brinkmanship, gamesmanship. One hopes that this is theater. But we know that there's a fair chance, at least, that it is not. We look to the Middle East. The eyes of the world had been on the Middle East for some time, and we say, oh, there's trouble there. I was in Israel recently, and the day we left, missiles rained down on Tel Aviv. And they did so again just two or three days ago, lots of them, causing destruction and damage. And of course, there's always the prospect of widespread death and people look towards Israel. Right there in the crossroads of the Middle East and we say, oh, it's tough. We want there to be peace, but there have been peace accords and there have been all kinds of plans and this is where it's got us. We know the Middle East is a troubled spot of this world. We think back, we think back to the Iraq war. We think forward to the war that's going on in Syria right now, right now. Just recently I met with, in fact, I had lunch with in the home of a family of Syrian refugees. They told me about their experience, how they lived in Aleppo, Aleppo. For most of us, Aleppo is just a name we hear on the news. For them, it's their address. They li- was their address. They lived in Aleppo. But war came to their neighborhood. War came to their street. They couldn't stay in their home. They had to flee. First, they lived where dad worked, in a basement. They lived underground. But then that was no longer tenable. And they had the opportunity to evacuate, to escape, and go and live in a foreign country. And that's where they live now, waiting to be placed somewhere around the world as refugees. So I've mentioned Israel. Before that, I mentioned Iran. And then we talked about Iraq and then Syria. Should we go on? We could. Afghanistan. It's been a quagmire of difficulty and trouble. I'm sure the Afghanis themselves just wish for a better day, but it's a, it's a troubled part of the world. It's Yemen, right now, there's conflicts in Yemen all around the Middle East, and people wonder, what's going on there in the Middle East? Now, don't think for a moment that the Middle East has been forgotten by God. You know, God's people were raised up in the Middle East. God called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. He called him from Mesopotamia, what today we would call Iraq. That's where Abraham came from. He was, by today's parlance, an Iraqi. And he came out of there following the leading of God and leaning on God and trusting in God. And he gave birth to a son. But we remember one son, there was another. The child of promise was, according to the Christian Bible, Abraham. But there was another son, uh, sorry, uh, Jacob. But there was another son and his name was Esau. And pretty early on in the piece, those two were at each other. And it appears to us that the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau have been struggling to get on together for thousands of years now. And we wonder, will there be peace? We wonder, we look to Israel, and many people do, with varying interpretations depending on how they read the scripture. And they wonder what God's going to do with Israel. What's God going to do in Israel? How will events unfold in the world in Israel? I hear people say that there will be a temple 
rebuilt in Israel. I don't know how clear that is in the Bible, but I wonder if as we look to the Middle East and as we seek to unravel the Middle Eastern question, I wonder if people might not be looking in rather the wrong direction. I wonder if as we look for a solution to the troubles in the Middle East and by extension around the world, if we're looking here when we should be looking there. And I'm going to demonstrate to you tonight that God will solve the Middle Eastern question, however you want to frame or phrase that. God will solve the challenges taking place in the world using or working in something that originally was built in the Middle East and traveled with the people of God. So let's consider this tonight as we consider the Middle Eastern question. We know as we go to the Bible that was not supposed to show up. So the slides that were hidden are actually going to show tonight, and that's a bummer. But that's the way it is. As we look to the Bible, we see that the Word of God speaks to us about the gospel. The gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news. It's the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the story of what Jesus has done, yea, verily, what Jesus continues to do to save sinners. And let's put it in a way that might be a little more user-friendly. We are here in a sinful world. God loves us. We're surrounded by challenges and sin, and we look at our hearts and we say often, ooh, yuck. But God has a plan to get us out of here and into the world to come, to save us from this mess and even to save us from ourselves. The final gospel message we are told in the Bible is going to go to the entire world, the entire world. Now, what I've noticed over the last couple of days is you cannot turn around without seeing election ads. Are you starting to enjoy them? There's a lot of them. And over the next week or so, they're only going to come thicker and faster. And you see billboards, and it's a politician. If you're online, the ad that pops up is something to do with the election. If you're in the mall, there are ads in the mall. They're everywhere. There's an election taking place. And what happens at election time is, and I'm just, I'm sure this doesn't happen with Australian politicians, but in other parts of the world, politicians will say exactly what they've got to say in order to get elected. I don't mean to be subversive. I'm certainly not anti-government, but I think that's just realistic. Recently, and I just want to tell you, this is just a wonderful thing, and I cannot identify the country because then you might think I'm being subversive, but the individual who was elected to the highest office ran on a platform that included this promise, we will end poverty in this country. Now, it sounds good. Hopefully what they mean is we're going to really try hard to help people who are having a hard time. But is anyone ever going to end poverty? No. It's just not going to happen. I mean, realistically, that's not a political statement. This is a statement of realism. So politicians will say what they've got to say, and sometimes they even mean what they say, but other times they just say what you hope, what they hope you will think. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I know what I'm trying to say, but I can't get the words out. Sometimes they merely say uh, uh, something so that you will think they mean what they say. There you go. There you go. Sometimes they say stuff simply so that you will think they mean what they say. They're on a certain platform. Some of them, they're committed to lowering taxes or increasing taxes or fighting crime or making prison sentences tougher or more lenient or whatever the case might be. But generally speaking, politicians will say what they've got to say. If there's a politician in the house tonight, I'm sorry, but I'm right. <laughs> and I meant what I said. So you've got the devil 
politicking and campaigning. There's a battle going on in the world right now, even tonight, and it's a spiritual battle as somebody, the enemy, the devil, wants you to be lost. That's what he wants. He's miserable and misery loves company. But God wants you to be saved. So the devil will say whatever he's got to say, whether it's true or not. God, on the other hand, when he campaigns, he will only tell you the truth. He is the campaigner of integrity. But the devil will lie and scheme and twist and all of that. But God does not. God shares a clear message. Of course, God wants your vote. Yes, he does. But he appeals to your nobler senses. He appeals to you on the basis of the love of God. He appeals to you on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ for you. He appeals to you on the basis of a better day coming where there'll be no more sin and sadness and death. God's message is important. It's important for us. It is the campaign message that must be listened to, but by and large, it's being ignored tonight in favor of a message from a campaigner who is just saying whatever he has to say in order to get elected. So tonight, we will not ignore God's message. We want to look at it. When you open up the book of Revelation, it starts with these words. Five words. The revelation of, can you finish that line? Jesus Christ, that's what it says, amen. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book is to reveal Jesus, to reveal to you God's plan for this world now and in the world to come. And when you get to Revelation chapter 14, here's God's message. This is God's platform. This is God communicating with you and he's telling you the truth and he's not a liar and he's not just embellishing and he's not simply trying to impress you. This is what he says. Then John wrote, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Here you have a message, an angel that's representing a messenger, a messenger bringing a message up in the midst of heaven. That's important. This is signifying that this is a message that God wants you not to miss, but to hear. Indeed, the message goes to everyone on planet earth according to what John wrote in what we call the book of Revelation. The angel comes with something referred to as the everlasting gospel. It's the good news. And we see this good news message will go to the world. It's what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations and then shall the end come. That's what he says. And what's the gospel? The gospel is that good news story. Jesus came to the earth. He lived a perfect life died a terrible death, but he died for us. The grave couldn't hold him. He ascended to to heaven where he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And one day he's coming back to gather the saved together and take us home to be with him forever. The divine son of God gave his life for you. While you were a sinner, Jesus saved you when you could not save yourself. It's truly good news. But here this everlasting gospel It doesn't contradict that, and I'm not saying it adds to that, but it sort of elaborates on that. God has a message for us down in the close of time. Verse 7 says, Fear God. Here's the message of the first angel. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made heaven, the earth, 
and the sea and the fountains of waters. Fear God is not to be terrified of God, to worship God with reverence and holy awe. Now, I would imagine that if God suddenly manifested himself, you might feel a little holy fear, but God's not saying walk around being terrified of the presence of God. Did you notice the Bible says the hour of his judgment is come, has come. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the seas and the fountains of waters. We've looked already last time we were here, and we see that Revelation 13 says the world will follow something called the beast. The world will worship something called the beast, which is a manifestation of the power and the influence of the devil himself. But in this gospel message, we are called to worship the creator. That's to worship Jesus, really, is what the Bible is saying. You know, we all worship something. You might worship a sports team. You might, oh, too far. You might worship a person. You might worship a job. Could be anything. Could be anything. What is it you worship? I wonder. Uh, Revelation 14 and verse 8, the next angel said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Just like ancient Babylon fell, when Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, was the king of Babylon, another Babylon is going to fall down here in the close of time. God wants us not to be caught up in that. And then a third angel followed them saying, if anyone worships the image and his beast, sorry, if anyone worships the image, I've got to try that again. We see a pattern emerging. This was happening during question time. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark and his forehead or in his hand, it goes on to say that that one will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. In other words, this power that will rise up in the end of time will have a mark and those that receive that mark, those who worship that thing, will be lost and cannot possibly be saved. But here's good news. This is why the Bible speaks of the gospel and the everlasting gospel. Here is the patience of the saints. So in spite of the fact that there is this tremendous spiritual battle going on, God says there will be people saved. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the, would you tell me? And the faith of Jesus, that's entirely right. So there is a gospel message to call us to faith in Jesus at a time when everything around us, everything in the world, everything, I mean pretty much everything in the world, is trending in precisely the other direction. Last time we were here, I spoke about this conspiracy, really launched by the devil to lead people away from faith in God and lead them to be lost. But God, the Bible says, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have, tell me what? everlasting life. God wants us saved. That's what, God wants the best for you. God wants the best for your children or your grandchildren. God wants the best for you at work and at home. God wants the best for you eternally. He has a good plan. He has a perfect plan. But in these last days of the earth's history, the enemy of souls is doing everything he can to ruin, to thwart that plan. Everything he possibly can. Paul wrote, Paul wrote that down here in the close of time, there would be a people manifesting a form of godliness 
but denying the power thereof. God wants better for us than that. God wants better for us than merely having a form of godliness. He wants the best that he can give us. Look at this. Back in Revelation 14, 7, it's part of God's final message for the world. Fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his, tell me, judgment is come. Now, judgment could be seen as being solemn. I think it should be. Serious, I think it is. But clearly, it must be good news. Must be. Because this, this is, is written in the context of the final good news message to go to the world. So God says, I have good news for you. Judgment. Good news. Well, let's look at this. The Bible speaks about this judgment actually taking place in Daniel 7. Daniel writes, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, God, the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Try to imagine this. This is really something. This is our Heavenly Father pictured, and, and there's judgment. Watch this. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Another version might say, the judgment was set and the books were opened. When he wrote to the Corinthian church, Paul said that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The wise man said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And then he said, for God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Notice that God will bring every work into what? Would you tell me? Into judgment. Back to Revelation fourteen seven. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment. And the next word used is, is. The hour of his judgment is come. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. So if Jesus is going to return to the earth one day, and he is, let's say he's going to return to the earth at midnight, just for argument's sake then he would have to decide ahead of time what rewards to bring for you and for me, right? Christmas time, you go and visit your parents or your kids or your neighbors or whoever it might be, the brother or the sister. You decide ahead of time what gift you are going to take for those people. You don't turn up and go, you know, I never gave this any thought. You think about it. If I mean, if you're a man, you go shopping on Christmas Eve. If you're, you know... A, female, you start Christmas shopping in January, and you can accuse me of being sexist if you like. I'm not being sexist, but man, I am generalizing. I really am. That's how it is, That's how it is in our house. You decide ahead of time. Jesus decides ahead of time what reward he is going to bring for what individual. In other words, there must be a judgment before Jesus returns. In the book of Daniel, God sets a date for the judgment. No, I didn't say a date for the return of Jesus, but a date for the judgment. Here it is. This is the date. He said to me, for or unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's God setting a date for the judgment. 
right there. Clearly, we're going to fatten this up a little bit before we are done tonight. Then shall the, the what be cleansed? Sanctuary. The sanctuary be cleansed. Now, in the Bible, there is talk of two sanctuaries. There is a sanctuary in heaven where is found, uh, where is or which is the temple of God. And there was a sanctuary on the earth. The sanctuary on the earth was a mobile or at least a portable sanctuary. And the children of Israel carried it, transported it with them on their wilderness wanderings. Later, it was replaced by a permanent structure known as the temple. The heavenly sanctuary is God's temple in heaven. You read about that in the book of Hebrews extensively and also in the book of Revelation. This is John writing. He wrote, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. That's the temple, the temple of God, the sanctuary of God in heaven, the sanctuary in the wilderness. And then the temple were God's way of teaching his people then and now about the plan of salvation. It was the center of the sacrificial system and those sacrifices were full of meaning. There's much we can learn. This took place in the Middle East. God's people had left Egypt and they were heading towards the promised land and God said to them, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. He said that to Moses. God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. He said, build me a house. And then he said, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. God said to Moses, I want to dwell in the midst of my people, so would you please make me a dwelling place? Make for me a sanctuary, and that's what they did. God said, you make the thing, but I will give you the plans. I will give you the pattern to follow. And so this sanctuary was built, divided into two apartments or compartments, say it however you like. As the priest would enter the sanctuary, he would walk into the holy place. It was the larger of the two rooms. And then behind a veil was a smaller room, and this was the most holy place. Every day, offerings were made throughout the year, every day, and the priest would then minister the blood of those offerings in the holy place of the sanctuary. But on a very special day, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place and the sanctuary would be cleansed. That was the day of atonement. It was judgment day for the people of God. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary was a day of judgment for Israel. The day of atonement was the day on which the record of the sins of the people were blotted out. I've alluded to this or mentioned this, but let's go back over it again. Day by day, people would bring their sacrifices to the sanctuary. It might be a goat, might be a lamb. That would be the animal sacrifices. Sometimes a turtle dove if you were very, very poor. There were other offerings as well, meal offerings, drink offerings. But as for the sacrifices, it was typically a lamb that was brought down there. 
the person bringing the lamb would confess his sins over that lamb, perhaps even for his family. And so this is what would happen. The sin would be transferred in type from the person to the animal. The sins were now on the animal. Figuratively, of course, but this is the way that God judged it. The man would confess his sins on the lamb. Now the sins were on the lamb. Well, then that lamb would be slain. His throat would be cut from ear to ear. And the priest would take some of the blood into the sanctuary, representing that the sin had been transferred from the sinner to the lamb, from the lamb to the blood of the lamb, from the blood into the sanctuary. So the sin was taken from the sinner all the way into the sanctuary. That would happen throughout the year on a daily basis. But then on a very special day, the Day of Atonement, it was Judgment Day. The high priest would minister and the record of the sins of the people would be blotted out. It, they would all be gone. That was the cleansing of the sanctuary. God said to Daniel, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And we might read that and go, huh? But every Jew who read that, Everyone who read the book of Daniel knew that what Daniel was saying was that one day there will be a judgment day. They were familiar with the cleansing of the sanctuary. It was part of the great plan of salvation that God had revealed to the people. They would be separated from their sins, no longer or not separated from God. Cleansing of the sanctuary, judgment day. Now I have a question for you and that's this. While people like to talk, some people, and God bless them, or like to talk about an earthly temple and how important it would be to have an earthly temple. I wonder if we're not missing something, if that's all we think about, because the Bible says this, it answers the question, what's Jesus doing now? Hebrews 9 and verse 24 is really important. It says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Let's pause right there. The holy places made with hands, that would be the earthly sanctuary or the temple. But this risen Christ, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but is entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What's Jesus doing? He's in heaven. Why is he there? He, as our high priest, is appearing in the presence of God for us. What is Jesus actually doing for you in heaven? There are people who have this idea that Jesus is sitting on a fluffy cloud, chatting with angels, eating grapes the size of volleyballs, and merely waiting for the bell to ring, and then he returns to planet Earth. Oh, no, no, that's not right. A lot of people don't have a clue what Jesus is doing, and that's really too bad. If you study espionage or read about espionage, there have been some really celebrated cases. And when I say celebrated, I, I guess I should say infamous. In the United States, there's a, name, a man named Robert Hansen. He worked for the CIA. But Hansen was selling secrets to the Soviet Union and then to Russia. People said, this is a CIA man. He's on the side of the good guys. But the fact of the matter is he was selling secrets to the people on the other side of the equation. Another famous fellow in Britain, a man named Kim Philby, educated in the best schools. He went to Oxford. No, he didn't. He went to Cambridge. I ought to get that right. 
He was in charge of stopping spies collecting information on Britain. But he was a double agent. The government of the United Kingdom said, we're trusting you to keep us safe. But instead of keeping United Kingdom's secrets safe, he was selling secrets to the other side. He was a double agent. Like Henson, people looked at Philby and they're like, well, we think you're on this side, right? But they had no idea at all whose side he was on. You know, some people are like that about God. They don't know whose side God is on. Especially when a disaster happens, they go, oh, well, God's not clearly on our side. Why did God let that happen? I want to tell you something, that Jesus is on your side. We read that he appears in the presence of God for us. Read this, Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And then two verses later, the Bible says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a temple that really matters. You know where it is? It's in heaven. Instead of looking to Israel and thinking, okay, the world's problems are going to be solved when a temple is built in Israel, instead of doing that, look up and say, all right, there's actually another temple, which in terms of my relationship with God is significantly more important. And I can go to that temple by faith. My high priest is there. He's ministering, not lamb's blood, but his own shed blood. And I know that I can go to that temple right there in heaven and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is why John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 1, he said, my little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. And then he said, but if anybody does sin, that person has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Stop and think about how very important this is. The word of God is telling us we have an advocate, an intermediary, an intercessor. It's a bit like having a lawyer. If you were accused of crimes that you didn't commit, you'd want to get the very, very best lawyer you could find. If you were accused of crimes that you did commit, you'd really want to get a good lawyer. But in the judgment of heaven, we are being accused of crimes we did commit. We're all sinners and the wages of sin is, that's what we have coming to us. Except in heaven, in the temple, not the temple in the Middle East, not a temple in Israel, instead in heaven's temple, there is a savior, there is a high priest who says, you come to me and I'll forgive you and cleanse you. You come to me and I will give you mercy and I will give you grace. That's where the action is. Jesus is in the, the heavenly temple, not a Middle Eastern temple, not a, a temple on the ground, not a temple made with hands. And just as there was a cleansing of the temple on the earth, there will be a cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. There will be a judgment day. Basically, the judgment is simply going to reveal who are those who yielded their lives to Jesus and who did not. Simply, the judgment reveals whose side you chose to be on. It's really an audit. The fact of the matter is, you judge yourself. Really? In heaven's judgment, and I'm, I'm simplifying this very deliberately, in heaven's judgment, we get to judge ourselves. 
Because it isn't God when, when your name comes up before God in judgment. It isn't God who goes, ooh, let's figure this out. Ooh, what do you think? Let's weigh the evidence. The evidence is presented. And God simply says, this person claimed to be a believer. Was she or was she not? Yes, she was saved. No, she was not, not saved. God simply honors the choices that we have made. That's what the judgment is. Now, back to this question of a date for the judgment. When is it going to take place? Daniel said 2,300 days. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. You know, we sometimes might make the mistake of thinking that prophets knew everything. But you know, they really didn't. Uh, Certainly not at the outset. God gave Daniel this prophecy. He didn't understand it. He didn't know what it meant. He understood the concept of the cleansing of the sanctuary, but what was this 2,300 days business? Well, God sent Daniel help so that he could understand this a little better. We'll read in verse 17 and on. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The vision about the 2300 days. It refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the what time? Latter time of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be, verse 26 says, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to, tell me, Many days when? In the future, that's correct. Now, Daniel received this vision somewhere around 600 BC. He was not as young as earlier, so you might say it was 570, 560, 550 BC. So if you start in 500, let's just say 550 BC, and you measure off 2,300 years, you get down to about 543 and a half BC. That's not the time of the end. That's not the latter end of the indignation. That's not the time appointed the end shall be. This vision was given to Daniel way back then, but it was for the time of the end. Please notice the Bible does not say the end of time. It was given for the the time of the end. So how can that be? Well, let me share this with you. As you read the prophecies of the Bible, many of them are symbolic. But those symbols, they mean something, and they mean something consistently. In Bible prophecy, a day is frequently used to represent a, does anybody know? That's right, a year. A day is frequently used to represent a year. So when God talked to Daniel about 2,300 days, he was actually referencing 2,300 what? Years. That's right. Now, start in 550 BC and measure off 2,300 years. Well, now, sure, you get down to what we might refer to about the the time of the end. It starts to make sense now. Daniel still didn't understand this all. He prayed. God sent an angel, and the angel said this. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the vision. What vision was he wrestling with? About the 2,300 days or years. Consider the vision, uh, the matter, and understand the vision. Consider the matter, understand the vision, and here's what the angel said to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, 
to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 70 weeks would be one year and 18 weeks, one year and four and a half months. That certainly was not sufficient time to do all this. Again, this is prophetic time that we are dealing with. There is such a thing, it's very clear. A day represents a year. So what do we make of this? If you've got 70 weeks, that would be 490 days. A day for a year indicates that 70 weeks would actually represent 490 what? So what was happening here? What was happening here? Back to the Middle East. God was giving Israel 490 years to come to repentance. Keep in mind what God was dealing with with Israel. Hard-hearted, stubborn. Every so often a good king would come along and then the next king would drag God's people down deeper and deeper and deeper into the quagmire of sin. You see? God was dealing with a rebellious people that were supposed to be the head, not the tail. And so God said to them, okay, I'm giving you so long, basically to get your act together. I'm going to give you 70 weeks, 490 years, so that you would come to repentance and actually get this thing figured out and live like you are serious about this thing that you call your faith in me. So when does this begin? Can we know when this time period begins? If we find the beginning, we can find the ending. Now, I, I talked about, you know, roughly Daniel got this in 550 BC, but where does this time prophecy begin? Once we find this, we can really work some things out. Starting in Daniel 9 and verse 25, the Bible says, Know therefore and understand that from, you got it? Here's a starting point. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublous times. I'm, I'm going to back that slide up because I don't want you to miss this. God says, know therefore and understand that from, here's a starting point. From the going forth of this certain command. What command? The command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. From that command. Down to what event? Down to Messiah the Prince. So start there. And you add 69 weeks. And you will get to the advent of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah. When Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem. I want to repeat that. It's worth repeating. God says there is a starting point. The starting point is the going forth of the certain commandment. When you find that, you'll be able to stretch out the measuring tape of time, 483 years, and you will come down to Messiah, the Prince. That is worth knowing. Seven plus 62, that's 69 weeks. That's 483 years. That time period would pass and Messiah would come. So where do we find this decree? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince. Where's the decree? You know, there are some books of the Bible that you read habitually. You read John, you read Psalms, you read Acts, you read maybe Revelation, you read Genesis, you read the Proverbs. And then there are some books you never read. 
You don't read Nehemiah. I mean, hardly. You don't read Nahum. Can you tell me what the book of Habakkuk is about? Not many people. We don't read those ones, you know, we just, we just pass right over them. Another one of those books is the book of Ezra. It's too bad we don't read some of these little books with some more enthusiasm because they contain a lot of really important stuff. And when you get into the book of Ezra and you read in chapter 7, you find in there the commandment given by King Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. You start reading about verse 13, read down to about verse 26. It's right there. Oh man, I, I didn't know it was there. No, because you go, Ezra, pfft, let me read John. Let me read Luke. Let me read that exciting stuff. Bother with this old archaic stuff. It doesn't seem to matter to me. But it's there for a reason, you know. And in Ezra chapter 7, you find the decree. Okay, that's the starting point for this prophecy. When was the decree issued? History tells you. Artaxerxes was a Medo-Persian king. The Persians were meticulous record keepers. History will tell you that that decree was issued in the year, listen, 457 BC. That's when the decree was issued. Artaxerxes the king, Medo-Persia. Esther, she lived in the time, that very same sort of time period. King Artaxerxes issued the decree in 457 BC. Now, we just do some mathematics. Add those 483 years and you get to the year 27 AD. Now, when you try this at home, it's not going to work. Your maths are not going to work. You'll be off by a year. And the reason for that is, uh, let's keep it simple. From minus 5 to plus 5, that's how much? It's 10, right? From minus 5 to plus 5, that's 10. From 5 BC to 5 AD, how many years is that? It's nine, because there's no year zero. Five minus five, four BC, three BC, two BC, one BC, one AD, two AD, three AD, four AD, there's nine, it's not 10. So if you get your calculator out and you say, how does this work? Remember, you're going to be off by one simply because there was no year zero, and that's how it differs. So this is really interesting. Start in 457 BC and add those years and you get to what the Bible says is Messiah the Prince. That would be when Jesus was anointed, that's when he became the Messiah. That's when he was Messiahed. And when would that be? 27 AD. Now I want you to notice something. The Bible says that Jesus was anointed when he was baptized. That's what it says. Luke 3 verse 1 tells you when Jesus was baptized. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Then Luke goes on and he records that Jesus was there. He was baptized. He prayed. The heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit came down and descended upon him. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did that happen? 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now consult history. When was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, wouldn't you know it? It works just like clockwork. It was 27 AD. Now, I, you know, I, I feel a little bit like a famous magician who just pulled a rabbit out of a hat. But I, I, I worry sometimes that people go, well, what did I just see? What, what, what was that? So let me just double back over that because this is really worth wrestling with. God said Jesus would be anointed as the, as the Messiah 
483 years after this decree, that's what he said, 483 years after that decree, in AD 27, Jesus was baptized. He was baptized in harmony with this great prophecy given by Daniel half a millennium before. Quite amazing. Now, this is why the Bible says in the book of Galatians, it's, 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 now you know why these verses were given. It says that Jesus would come in the fullness of time. There's another place in the Bible, it's Mark chapter 1, speaks about the baptism of Jesus. And then it says this, after Jesus was baptized, he then when he began preaching and he said, listen, he said, the time is fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? What was he talking about? Jesus could not simply come out of the water and go, hey, y'all, I am the Messiah. It's me. I'm the Messiah. He couldn't do that. But he knew that the scholars and the doctors of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were looking at their scrolls and they were looking at the sundial and they were saying, it's time for the Messiah. It's absolutely time. Because the time prophecy said Messiah would come 483 years after that decree. This is why if you read the Bible, you get the picture. And if you read history, you really do. There were a whole bunch of false Christs that popped up at that time. Because Israel was in, uh, was in a heightened state of alert. They knew Messiah's coming around here somewhere. And so Jesus, when he was baptized, didn't say, ladies and gentlemen, allow myself, allow me to introduce myself. He instead said, The time is fulfilled. They knew what he was talking about. They knew about the time prophecy. They knew there has to be a Messiah around here somewhere. But instead of saying, it is me, he prodded their thinking. You all are concerned about a time prophecy. I want to tell you, I am here as the fulfillment of that time prophecy. Jesus was baptized right on time. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be what? cut off. When was Jesus cut off? He was cut off when he died out there on that old rugged cross. He would be cut off. But then the word of God says that he would confirm the covenant with many for one week. A week is seven days. That's seven years. He would confirm the covenant for seven years. And in the middle of that seven year period, he would cause the sacrifices and the oblations to cease. What did Jesus do that brought about an end to the sacrificial system? He died on the cross. The Bible tells you that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. God was saying, I'm done. No more animal sacrifices. You don't need these temple services anymore. Because the true lamb has died. And from now on, the action's going to take place up there in the temple in heaven. People are looking at Israel, they're going, oh, what's going to happen next? They're looking, someone's going to build, someone's going to build a, a, a temple. It's all very important. Somebody found a red heifer somewhere. Oh, Israel, Israel. Okay, listen, it, it's good to study the word of God and it's good to know something about that and there's not, nothing wrong with looking at where different pieces fit into the puzzle. But if you are looking from a salvational point of view, don't look there, look up, look up. Because Jesus is at work, if you'll let me put it that way, in the heavenly sanctuary above. The true lamb died. Paul wrote, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, according to the time. What time? 
the time prophecy found in the Bible. So let's look at this here. 457 BC, the decree. You add 483 years, you get to the Messiah-ing of Jesus when he was baptized. Three and a half years later, Jesus died on the cross. And three and a half years after that, the 70 weeks would be up. What did God give the 70 weeks for? He said, Israel, I'm giving you 490 years to come to repentance. They did not. They did not. And so what happened as a result? Paul preaching said this. It was necessary that the word of God, this may be Peter, forgive me. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you when? First, he's speaking to the Jews here. But since you reject it, since you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to who? Up until then, the prerogatives of salvation were kept for the Jewish people. But after that 490-year period, it's not that God rejected Jews. Of course, Jews may still be saved. It's just that God expanded the borders or the boundaries a little bit. And he said to you, you may, you Gentiles, we Gentiles, you may be saved. The message is for you. The gospel is to go to the world now, to earth's remotest bounds now. The disciples took the gospel, I mean, everywhere. Thomas went to India and Paul went here and there and Peter traveled hither and yon. No longer were the privileges of the gospel held for that little patch in the Middle East. But instead, the privileges of the gospel were made available to anyone, to everyone, wherever they might be on this sphere we call earth. This prophecy is amazing proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Bible. It just is. And keep this in mind, it was the angel Gabriel who brought this prophecy to Daniel. Whenever Gabriel pops up, he's there talking about the Messiah. That's what he does. This prophecy is a prophecy of Christ, but I want to tell you something. It was misinterpreted once before. God gave the prophecy to a group of Middle Easterners and he said, this is what's going to happen. And they weren't ready when Jesus came the first time. And I wonder if down here in the close of time, this prophecy might be ignored again by people who might not be ready. Back then, they said, don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. Down in the close of time, there'll be people who say, don't give us Christ, give us Antichrist. It's, it's written in the Bible that all the world will wonder after the beast. But this prophecy points to Jesus, Savior on earth and mediator in heaven's sanctuary. Now, I talked to you about 2,300 days, and we've looked at 490 of them. So let's add the rest. There are 1,810 years left over. You add it to 34 AD, and you get down to the year 1,844, which indicates to us that since the middle of the 19th century, we have been living in what the Bible refers to as the time of heaven's final judgment. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? Why take so long? You, what? You don't mean to ask that question. What, if it took 10 years, none of us would be saved. How about you thank God that it took so long? How about you thank God that Jesus hasn't finished yet because there's still people that you want to share the good news with. There are still people you care about. There's still family members that you would love to see come to repentance. What we learn is that in 1844, nothing special about the year. It was just the year designated by God to be the fulfillment or the end point of this prophecy wasn't something that happened here on earth. We're looking to the Middle East. 
We're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be what's going to happen over there in Israel. The question ought to be what's happening in heaven and how does that impact me right now? In heaven, judgment is taking place. And what that means is that before too terribly long, judgment must come to us. This is why the Bible says, fear God and give glory to him. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And being as the hour of his judgment has come, we must worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The first part of this prophecy was given to get people ready for the first coming of Christ. Now, the second part of the prophecy is given to us to remind us that we must be ready for the second coming of Christ. How can you be ready? How can we be ready? Let me ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer out loud, but do you reckon you're ready? Are you taking God seriously? I'm not asking you if you're as holy as Enoch was. I don't mean that. I'm not asking you if you're the, the most upright person in the church. I don't mean that. I'm asking you as you look at your heart, can you say, yes, I've opened it up for God, or might you say, haven't really been taking this seriously? Judgment time. Can't be much more serious than that. It's judgment time. But the Bible says in judgment time, there is hope for you. There's hope for you. Again, I want to go back to something I said earlier. You get called downtown to the, what, the high court or the Supreme Court or whatever it might be. And someone accuses you of something that you haven't done. You know that if you've got a half-decent lawyer, you'll walk. You'll be free. You didn't do the crime. But in this case, you did do the crime. You, we sinned, all of us. And what's the penalty? The wages of sin is what? A death penalty. It's a serious penalty. Serious thing to live in the world knowing that because you are a sinner, you have a death penalty hanging over your head. I visited a man once in prison who had been sentenced to death. He's sitting on what they call in the United States death row. He's been there a while. He doesn't know when he'll be executed, but he expects that it will happen. I know his family. It's a terrible thing, a terrible thing to be under the death sentence. And that's where we find ourselves. Accept that. Accept that. Listen to this. It's Romans. No, it's not. It's Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, seeing as he ever lives or he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't miss this. Jesus is going to come back soon, soon enough. We don't know exactly when, nobody does, but we believe soon. We've seen the signs, we see them. At this stage, judgment is taking place in heaven. We're all sinners. What hope do we have? Oh, my friend, we have hope tonight. Because in spite of what's going on in the world right now, in heaven above, Jesus is there as our mediator, as our intercessor. And he is able to save anyone who comes to God through him. Anyone. You might have thought my sins are too great. I'm telling you tonight, the Savior is greater. You might have thought I have sinned away the grace of God. I'm here to tell you tonight, you have not. You might have thought, I'm too bad. I want to tell you that God is that good. 
He ever lives, always lives to make intercession. And how that works is you front up to God like that sinner with a lamb and you say, I have sinned, but I want to see my sins placed on the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. And God says, you know, you arrived a sinner, but now I see you as a saint. I'll take care of those sins. They've been paid for. Jesus died for you. And you get to go away from that exchange as clean and as pure as the driven snow. Jesus died for you. Tonight in heaven's sanctuary, he lives for you. He intercedes for you. And the good news is soon he's coming back for you. Can you say amen tonight? I remember being on a little plane, a little wee plane. I didn't even know how many people it held. I was only traveling like 100 miles, flying from one airport to another. It was in the midst of a storm. Not the worst storm, but a bad enough storm. It was raining cats and dogs. And that little plane was just getting bounced around up there in the sky. I was the only passenger on it. (laughs) Sitting back there, I only had myself to console me. And I was as worried sick. This was years ago. I'd never been on a plane that small and I'd never flown in a storm. Where I was sitting, I could see through. that There was a curtain, but it had been pulled aside a little bit. And I could see up into the cockpit. And it wasn't reassuring to me to begin with to notice that the pilot had his hands on the, oh, the steering wheel, whatever you call that, and he was holding it so tightly his knuckles were white. He was communicating with the control tower and doing his thing and checking the instruments and he was keeping us up in the air. And man, I was worried until it dawned on me, what are you worried about? The pilot knows what he's doing. Someone's in charge. He's going to make sure we land safely. He'll get us out of this mess. Sometimes I look around the world and I'm tempted to worry. Sometimes I look at my own inadequate heart and I'm tempted to worry. But I want to tell you tonight, you don't need to worry. I don't need to worry. We have a friend. The good news is this, that in heaven we have a savior. His name is Jesus. He's in control. He knows what's going on. There's judgment tonight, but that's okay because Jesus is in heaven for us. What a great prophecy held right there in the heart of the book of Daniel. Starting right back before the time of Jesus, stretching right down to where we are tonight. And the good news is he's not against you. He's for you. And best of all, he's coming back soon to take you home. Amen. We were blessed earlier by beautiful music. We're going to be blessed again. I knew it was going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And when you hear this music tonight, you'll be reassured. It's going to be okay. Jesus is flying the plane. Jesus is going to get us there. Jesus is in control. If you invite him to be in control of your life, you can know everything's going to be okay.